You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. tells these men that those that dwelt in Jerusalem at that time, the rulers, your rulers, and the people who dwelt there, because they didn't know who Jesus was, they didn't listen to the voices of the prophets, even though they heard the prophets every single Sabbath day, these men fulfilled the prophecies about the Messiah because they hung him on a tree. They killed him, and they placed him in a tomb. And then we came to those wonderful words of Acts 13.30, but God, those wonderful words that make our hearts soar. But God raised him from the dead. Don't miss Jesus. In Pastor Dave's message today, he emphasizes the importance of heeding the words of the prophets and the proof of the resurrection. The Bible contains all the evidence that Jesus is the Christ. The proof is right before our eyes. If we would only look into the Word of God, believe in Jesus today. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 13 as he begins his message, Paul's first sermon application. beginning in Acts 13, verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost a whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light of the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women, and the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let me start off today by asking you a question. How do you study the Bible? What are your study methods? Do you study the Bible? Well, there are many methods used to study the Bible. Many, many different methods. There are three that are very, very common. There are three very common methods to study the Bible. They are called the deductive method, the springboard method, and the inductive method. These are basically the most common forms of studying the Word of God. The deductive method begins with a premise. It starts with propositions and works from there. A proposition such as sinners deserve punishment. That's a proposition. That's a a premise. A.B. is a sinner. That's also something that you look at. So sinners deserve punishment. A, B is a sinner. 
Therefore, A.B. deserves punishment. That's, that's a premise. That's how you study the Bible through that way. The next method is called the springboard method, and this is about sharing opinions. Opinions. You look up various opinions on Scripture, and then you find various Scripture to support your opinion that you have. The final method, the inductive method, happens to be my personal favorite, and it's the one that I try to use a lot. And you can, when I tell you that what is included in it, you'll understand if you've listened to me for a while. In this method, you pull out the facts and you examine the facts of the Bible. The inductive method uses three components, observation, interpretation, and application. And the inductive study involves asking certain questions about the text. For example, during the observation period, after you've read the text several times, you ask questions like, what were my first impressions? What did I first think when I read the text? Who said what? When did they say it? Why did they say it? To whom were they speaking? So your observations, you're making observations about what it is you read by asking those questions. The second part of the inductive method is the interpretation. Now, you ask questions and you're like, how is the text interpreted literally? And what is the context of the text? What is the context of it? In other words, how does it fit? Is it by itself or does it fit in Scripture? Remember, it's always context, context, context. You cannot take the Scriptures out of context because you get in trouble when you do that. When you use them for other purposes, you get in trouble. We should always allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. You've heard me say before that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. Scripture interprets Scripture. And as we study as Christians and believers, the New Testament takes precedent over the Old Testament in our lives. That's the uh, interpretation. And finally, we have the application piece. And this asks the questions, how do I respond to what I just read? How do I respond to what I just read? Are there examples that I should follow? Is there a sin that I should forsake? Are there errors that I should avoid? Are there promises to believe? Or are there commands that I have to obey? And finally, what action should I take? These are the questions that you ask in the application process. However, never begin a study of the Word of God without praying first and allowing the Holy Spirit and asking the Holy Spirit to show you the content and the context and the interpretation of the verse. Always ask the Holy Spirit to guide you. You can get in real trouble if you fail to apply the Word of God or to use it appropriately in your life. You get very, very, you get in very, very trouble if you misappropriate or misapply the Word of God. I'll give you an example. Did you hear the one about the woman who had a heart attack? Well, there was this middle-aged woman who had a heart attack and she went to the hospital. While she was in the operating room, she had a near-death experience and she had an encounter with God. When she saw him, she immediately said, is this it? He said, no, I'm giving you 30 more years to live. Upon her recovery from the heart attack, she went out and got a facelift. She even had liposuction. She had extensive plastic surgery on many, many different parts of her body. She even changed her hair completely and the color of it. Her thinking was, well, if I got 30 more years left, I might as well make the best of it. After her last surgery was complete, and while she was leaving the hospital, she got hit by an ambulance and was killed. She's in heaven before God, and she goes, I thought I had 30 years left. And God said, oh, I didn't recognize you. 
it's important that we apply the word of God correctly to our lives. It's important that we apply what we've learned to our lives and what God is speaking to us about. It's extremely important to the life of a Christian that we apply it correctly. The teaching or the studying of God's word will always be followed by questions. Questions like, how do I respond? What should I do? Remember after Peter's sermon at Pentecost, when he gave that great rousing sermon after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit fell? The men were there and they gathered and they said this in Acts 2, 37. They were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What a great response to the word of God. What shall we do? Remember the jailer, the Philippian jailer? We're going to get to that in Acts 16, you know, after the earthquake. And Paul said, we're still here. What should we do to be saved? Wow, what a great response. What a great response to things that are happening. But as we've studied Acts 13, we've seen the apostle Paul now standing before the brethren in the synagogue, and he's been talking to them. He's been giving his first sermon, and he's been teaching them, number one, the history of Israel. He went through the entire history of the nation, telling them that God had prepared them for the Messiah that was coming. God had prepared them. God had given them kings, judges, prophets, and prepared them for the coming Messiah. He used these to prepare them, especially King David, who everyone knew that God had told King David that from your seed, the Messiah will come, and the Messiah will sit on the throne forever, this being a direct promise. Then last week, we studied as Paul declared to them the gospel. Paul declared to them the actual gospel of Jesus Christ. He declared to them that Jesus, the Son of God, and according to the testimony of John the Baptist, John said, I was the, I'm not the Messiah. I'm the prophet that was sent as like Isaiah said, preparing the way of the Lord. Paul was saying to the brethren that this Jesus was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. He was the one to whom they've been waiting for. The one that God had said, I will prepare the way that you will receive him. They should have known that Jesus was the Messiah. Their way was prepared for them. They had all the evidence they needed. Jesus' life alone was a testimony that he was who he says he was. The blind received sight. The lame walked. The deaf were able to hear, and the good news was preached. But Paul tells these men that those that dwelt in Jerusalem at that time, the rulers, your rulers, and the people who dwelt there, because they didn't know who Jesus was, they didn't listen to the voices of the prophets, even though they heard the prophets every single Sabbath day, these men fulfilled the prophecies about the Messiah because they hung him on a tree. They killed him, and they placed him in a tomb. And then we came to those wonderful words of Acts 13, 30, but God. Those wonderful words that make our hearts sore. But God raised him from the dead. Paul declares to them the glorious resurrection, which again fulfilled prophecy. Paul concluded his sermon by saying this in Acts 13, 38 and 39. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, he's talking about Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sin, and by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Paul's declared to them the gospel, the simple truth. Those believing upon Jesus would receive salvation or forgiveness of sin, and they would be justified from all things, things they couldn't be justified under the law of Moses. What a glorious thing this would be. Paul would later write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 4, and he would simplify this gospel. In fact, when we sang it in Glorious Day, what a simple gospel it is. If you look at it, it's not some glamorous thing. It's very, very simple. It's very, 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 very small in what it says, but it's huge in the importance. 
Paul said in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which you stand, by which you were saved if you hold the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered you, first of all, as I received. Christ died for our sins according to a scripture. He was buried, and then he rose on the third day according to scripture. Gospel right there. Gospel message. Christ was alive. Christ died. He was buried, and he rose again. Gospel. Paul preaches it to him. Paul, on that Sabbath day, talked to the brethren that were hearing that. They had heard the gospel message. Paul laid it out to them in terms that they could understand. Now, just like we said last week, guess what? Now, they were responsible for it. They had to do something with what they heard. Just like when the word of God is taught, we're responsible for it. We have to do something with what it's heard. That's called application. How do we apply what we've learned from the word of God? How do we take it and make it real in our lives when we hear it? That's our job to look at. They had heard the message and they were responsible. And Paul warns them, don't despise this message. Take heed with this message. He warned them that God was doing something that they might not understand. It's going to take faith for you to understand this, folks. It's going to take faith. The word of God had been preached. It was time for the crowd to respond. Remember, we said earlier that after the study or after we hear the word of God, a response is usually kind of demanded. What do you do with what you hear? We must apply what we heard to our lives. It's our job. In these last 10 verses of chapter 13, we see varying responses to Paul's message. We see varying responses to what Paul is saying. I see many responses here. Some of them are very, very good responses, and some of them are not so good. If you're a note taker, they happen to all begin with the letter D. As we look to verse 42 and 43, the first thing I see is a desire. I see a desire, and I see this desire in two forms. First of all, I see the desire for the more of the Word of God. They wanted more of the Word of God, a desire for more of the Word of God. Look what it says. So when the Jews went out to the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. This is what happens when the Word of God is preached and it begins to work in your heart. A desire is placed in your heart to want more of the Word of God, more of the truth. It's a desire that you can't explain. This desire produces a hunger in you that cannot be quenched by human understanding. Remember what Jesus said and declared in Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Those that come after him and look to him will be filled with this understanding. Jesus told the woman at the well that he had water. He had water of which if she drank this water, she would never thirst again. What was he talking about? He was talking spiritually. He was talking about a spiritual fullness. The spiritual water would quench her hunger and thirst for righteousness. It would let her know what true righteousness was. Our spirit in us yearns for righteousness. It yearns for the word of God. This is what the psalmist wrote in those beautiful passages in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water brook, my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. See, our soul wants God in our lives, and we, and we hunger and thirst for that righteousness. We hunger and thirst for what is found in God's Word. And every time it's taught to us, we want more in our lives. We want to see Him more in our lives. The longing for the truth in our soul and in what their soul was what was drawing these Gentiles into a relationship with the Lord. Their soul was exposed to a longing that's been there. 
A longing that was there long ago. You know, they call it what you want, a God-shaped hole. Call it whatever you want in your heart that wasn't filled before you were a Christian. It wasn't there because God wasn't in it. But once you become this Christian, you can't get enough of his word. You can't get enough of him. And you're always looking for that. Always. Nothing, nothing satisfies the soul like the word of God. Nothing satisfies the soul like the word of God. God is a present help in time of trouble. An ever-present help. He's right there in the midst of your trouble. But if you don't have him dwelling in you richly, then you are searching and seeking, and your soul is panting. Where are you, God? Where are you, God? These men wanted the word so badly that they actually begged Paul and Barnabas, come back. We beseech you. We beg you. It means to implore with urgency. You guys got to come back. You guys just can't walk away now. We, we got to hear more of this. We, gotta, we want more of this. So I see this desire for the word of God. Secondly, I see a desire to understand and apply the word of God. Not only do they want more of it, but they want a desire to understand and apply it to their lives. It says, now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. This is very similar to what Barnabas said to the Antioch church when he got to the Antioch church back in 1123. He told them to purpose in their hearts to continue in the Lord. What great counsel. Paul and Barnabas are looking at these guys and saying, continue in the grace of God. These men must have made some sort of profession of faith because Paul, they're telling them, continue in the profession that you've made. Continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What great advice. As we said last week, this is great advice even today. Even today as Christians, we need to continue in the Lord. We need to continue in his word, continue in fellowship with the saints, continue in study of him, continue walking by his love. Paul and Barnabas say, continue in the grace of God because it's by grace through faith that we've been saved. It's by grace through faith that we live the Christian life. The life I now live, I live by faith, it says. Again, going back to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10, Paul said this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was in me. No, Pastor Chuck said, notice the place of grace in Paul's life, but also notice the place of works. And you can take works and supplant the word application. Notice how Paul applied the word of God to his life. He applied the grace of God to his life. Now, a lot of people talk about the grace of God, and they totally exclude the application. Just receive the grace. Just receive God's grace. Whatever needs to be done, God will do it. Just receive God's grace. There are those who even look upon works as almost something wrong. It is wrong to look upon works if you're looking for works for righteousness standing before God. Works will not get you in heaven. Works does not save you. Only by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus plus something else. Works cannot bring you into a righteous standing before God. But having received the grace of God, having received it by faith, my response to him is that the grace is my desire to do for God whatever I can do. My response then becomes, what can I do for you? What can I come back and do for you because of all this wonderful grace you've given me? That's what Paul's saying here. I want to show my love and appreciation for you, Lord. I want to see others come into your grace, come into your mercy. I want to see others come into the kingdom. Works. Application have a place in the believer's heart. It's vital place for our lives. 
Works can do nothing for our salvation or righteousness, but they help us to show our appreciation and love for God. Sometimes we seek by our works to get God to respond to us. Sometimes it's just, if I do this, you'll do this. If I fast, you'll do this. If I pray more, you'll do this. We try to make God obligate it to us. That's works. We can't do that. God's not going to change. God is who he is. He's the initiator of everything. We are the responder. We're the ones to respond to his love. While we were yet sinners, Christ demonstrated his love for us by dying on a cross. We respond to that love. We love because he first loved us. We respond to God's love. It's a natural response to a love. The works that I do are not to get God to respond to me. I'll do this if you do that. No. We don't obligate God to do anything. I respond to what God has done for me. Paul says that having the recipient of God's grace, by responding to that grace, he labored more abundantly than anybody else, the rest of the apostles. Jesus said that he was forgiven much, loved much. When you have that love, when you realize that love of what you've been forgiven of, what you've been set free from, man, you love with a desire that's incredible. You love with the heart of Christ, and you love unconditionally. So we see the desire for the word and the desire to understand. These are being responses to what Paul has said the gospel message. But another response is the drawing of people in, the drawing of people in, evangelism. Evangelism didn't begin with a D, so I had to come up with something else. Drawing people in. The word must have gotten out because look at what happens on the next Sabbath day in verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Wow. What did they come to hear? They came to hear the word of God. They did not come to see a man, but to hear the word of God. This must have delighted Paul's heart. Paul, the total missionary, the total pastor, his heart must have soared when they begged him to come back because they came to see and hear the word of God. They came to hear it. People were coming to hear the word of God. They were receiving what was being said, and they were receiving it as God's word, and they were wanting to hear more of it. They were telling others about it, bringing others to the church. You got to hear. You got to hear the word of God. Come on. You got to get here and hear the word of God. It's the power of God to salvation. You got to hear this stuff, and people were coming to hear. It's the word of God that draws men and women to God. It's not slick preaching. It's not fancy shows. It's not dancing in the aisles, waving flags. It's not programs. It's the word of God that draws people to God. It's his word and his word alone that draws them into a relationship with him. The whole city came to see what was going on. The whole city was drawn. Wow, what an exciting time. What an exciting time it was. So we see the desire and we see drawing people in. Another response to the Word of God is the dispensing of an attitude. Dispensing an attitude. Yeah, the old attitude thing. This is what's happening to the Jews or with the Jews in verse 45. They copped an attitude. You are You've been listening to Pastor Dave on A Sure Hope. Pastor Dave is working his way through the book of Acts. Did you know that the first martyr for Jesus was a great man of faith? His name was Stephen, and he was bold and courageous to proclaim the name of Jesus to others. He wasn't afraid to tell the truth, even when it cost him his life. What courage in the midst of opposition! 
Do you think you could do the same in this day and age? It's hard to stand up for Jesus when everyone around you is telling you you're intolerant, unloving, and just looking to put people down if you tell them they're doing something wrong. But what makes things right or wrong is firmly rooted in Scripture. It's God's Word that should direct morality, and Stephen was unafraid to go there. If you like this message and would like to catch up on any message you may have missed, head over to AsureHopeRadio.com. There you'll find many messages from the Book of Acts, as well as other series. If you find yourself in the Cape May, New Jersey area, stop in and see us. All the information you need is on our website, location, directions, and service times. And if you prefer to call, you can do that too. Our number is 609-884-5821. Once more, that's 609-884-5821. We'd be happy to answer any questions over the phone. Well, that's all we have time for today, but we've loved spending this time with you. We look forward to the next edition of A Sure Hope.